Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, January the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm delighted to be joined today by Fintano Tool and Pat Leahy, both of this parish. We wanted to pull back the focus a bit, I suppose, on this election. We've been talking a lot about the nitty-gritty, the calling of it, this business of it being on a Saturday. And we will maybe touch on a couple of those things. But first, Fintan, uh, you jumped the gun a little bit in your column in yesterday's Irish Times uh, where you were complaining about something which it seems to me that people have been complaining about since the dawn of time here, which is <laughs> the inability of the Irish political system to deliver real necessary change because of Clientelism? Is that fair? Well, is it clientelism? Uh, yes. You know, uh, patronage. The, uh, yeah, I, I was just sort of trying to highlight just, just two examples from last week that just happens to coincide, right? So so one was um, the announcement of the sports grants, um, entirely coincidentally timed for, you know, the, the week before the O'Connor election. Um, and uh, we know from reporting in the Irish Times by Fia Kelly that uh, in um, one of the big grants went to, for example, the Connacht Rugby, redevelopment of Connacht Rugby grounds in Galway. Perfectly good project, by the way. I'm not complaining about Connacht Rugby. <laughs> but Connacht Rugby asked for, for 20 million. They were told, the process went through, the Department of Sports says 10 million is the appropriate grant from the state. And we know that within a matter of minutes, I mean, Leo Varadkar personally signed off on doubling the grant to 20 million with no process. You know. So you can magic up 10 million like that, right? With, with, with no real scrutiny or process. The day before... We had a big announcement from the Department of Education, right, which was that it was a you know, massive, fantastic, great, partly a response to the Irish Times No, no Child campaign on, on, on child poverty. A million euro, finally, for free school books in DESH schools, deprived schools, deprived primary schools. A million euro. A pilot project. We're not, we're not, and we, God, we're not saying that we're going to do this like forever. Like it's just, we'll see how it goes. You know, it's a million euro after all. It's an awful lot of money, you know. And it's the disjunction between these two things tells you something about what our political leaders think of us, right? So they're not stupid, right? They are, by definition, people who are successfully operating the system. So they have to be taken seriously. And it tells you their judgment is saying, I got, or the Fine Gael TDs in Galway in this case, right? <laughs> you know, uh, Sean Kine and Hildegard Nocton can put on their you know, election literature, I got 20 million for the stadium, is much better from the point of view of getting votes than being able to say, I got free school books for every Irish child. The cost of free school books, for example, um, would be 20 million, you know, uh, for, for every child. Now, we are one of the only countries in the developed world that does not have free primary education. Like it's, it's an absolutely basic part of being a modern, civilised society. We put in the Constitution in 1937 and we still don't have free primary education. Now, they're making a judgment, right, which is actually being able to say, I did free primary education, nobody cares. And the question for us as voters then is, is are they right about us or are they wrong? You know, are they right to think um, that, that, you know, we'll be bought off with 
you know, a couple of meaningless things, like you know, a couple of tax cuts here or there, or you know, a few kind of gestures here and there? Or are we actually serious about what would it take to have a single-tier health service, for example, which we've been talking about forever and ever and ever, as well as talking about clients as forever and ever and ever. By, I'm running a piece for Saturday just to think about these things. I mean, by, if, if this government lasts for the full five years, which probably won't, but let's say we are theoretically electing government to 2025. <laughs> by 2025, this society will be spending roughly 25 billion a year on healthcare. 25 billion, if you put, you know, the, the public taxpayers' money, the, the premiums we pay and health insurance and all the out-of-pocket expenses together. 25 billion. And the absolute chances are we still will not have a functioning health service, which doesn't have some of the highest waiting lists in the world. We currently have eight times more people on hospital waiting lists in Ireland than you have in England. That's not proportionally. I mean, absolute numbers. Mm. Eight times more in our little society than you have in England. And yet we spend more money per capita than they And do. yet it's not a money problem. Like we're, 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 we're one of the biggest spenders on healthcare proportionally in the world. And, and you can even add into that, that that we should be getting better value because we have a younger population, right? So, so this is going to change over, over time. But as of now, our, our population is unusually young and therefore we should be getting a lot of bang for our book and we're not. Are we interested in really thinking about what are the long-term changes you need to make to, to tackle that kind of stuff? So, Pat, our system is broken and particularly relevantly right now because we're starting at the start of an election campaign. A key reason our system is broken is because of the incentives which politicians are reacting to. And everybody within the system is acting rationally, in a way. So politicians accumulating or relying on many accumulated years of experience are reacting to the behaviour of the voters and they're reacting rationally to it. So, you know, Sean Kine and Hildegard Nocton and their political allies who secured the 10 million extra for Connacht Roby. On top, by the way, of the 10 million that, they, uh, that they've been allocated in the sports, sports capital grants, they're doing so because they believe with a high degree of justification that they will be rewarded by voters for doing so. So uh, actually, this, this question is more one for the voters Absolutely. than it is for the politicians. And this is one of the reasons why this campaign is so important because it's the one chance that voters get for five years, if it all lasts five years, we can give out on podcasts or in the pub or on Twitter or whatever it is. But this is the chance we get, the voters get, to issue a set of instructions to to politicians, to tell them what we think their priorities should be. And, you know, as Joe Biden says... Show me your budget and I'll show you your priorities. But what is the one thing that politicians will say in this election above anything else? And it's the thing that Fianna Fáil are going to, I think, structure their entire campaign around. And that is delivery. I'll deliver. And what they mean by that is I'll deliver principally for the local area. Go back to the voters. Look at the election surveys that tell us after every election the single biggest reason that people chose to vote for a particular candidate was to deliver for the local area. I think that is changing. I think the nature of our political loyalties to 
particular tribes is changing. There are more votes up for grabs now in this general election. There are more uncommitted votes probably than in any election uh, in, in any election in the past. You know, people talk about the parallels between the Hahi Fitzgerald elections in the 1980s and the Varadkar Martin clash in this election. In the 1980s, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael got more than 80% of the vote. This time they'll get 50-ish percent of the vote, maybe a bit more. So there's a whole lot more uncommitted votes. But it's up to voters to use those votes to issue instructions. And in a little while I want to get into what that might be. But if we take it, and I know this is an oversimplification, but if you take it that it's easier to get 10 million for a sports ground in Galway than it is to get 10 million for school books for for kids whose parents can't afford to, to buy school books, if the local is privileged over the major national issue, although I know, Fintan, you also talked about baubles for taxation for everybody and something for everybody in the audience as well. But how much of this, and I know this has come up again and again and again, is is down to um, multi-seat PR, STV, and the kind of and the, and the intense, the kind of hyper-localism which that tends to privilege. Yeah, uh, like PR is a great system. Multi-seat PR, I think, has has obvious problems. You know, it's it's very very good at keeping people on their toes, and you know, it's a very competitive system. We know that a lot of us are going to go in on, on February eighth and vote one to twenty-five. You know, it's it's a, it's a, it's it's amazing system in terms of voter power. But the problem is that it, it, it intensifies not just competition between parties, which is a very good thing, but competition within parties, particularly in the larger parties, you know. And and so it's not just that the TD is, is, is um, you know, looking at what their rival in the other party is doing. A lot of them are much more concentrated on who's the whippersnapper who's coming up and trying to take my seat, my, my traditional... Again, Gale seat quite rationally, because he's uh, much more of a threat. Much more of a threat. Yeah, precisely. But you Pat know. says this is on but, the wane. Do you but, see that? Uh, yeah, th- this is where I do think... W- one of the reasons I was writing that on, on Tuesday and, and, and I've written another piece for Saturday about this is that I, I sense, maybe I'm a perpetual deluded optimist, right? but I, 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 I have a sense just from the conversations around... And it's interesting if you listen to the Vox Pops and stuff. I know, I know they're, you know, they're, they don't really tell you an awful lot, but just as straws in the wind. It's very interesting suddenly. I don't remember ever an election where people were being randomly stopped on the street or saying, I'm going to study the manifestos. I want to see what they have to say about housing, what they have to say about healthcare, what they have to say about climate change. You're getting that an awful lot in, in ways that I simply don't remember ever before. And I do think there is... There is a, as Pat says, there's an unmoored electorate now, right? So, so roughly half the electorate is is, is going to vote for Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, and roughly half of it is is completely up for grabs. And I, I think I genuinely think a lot of that electorate is actually saying, "Show me w- what you have to say. Tell me how we we know these are the, these are huge crises." And I think there is a market for. Uh, somebody coming along and saying, look, this is where the Greens, I think, will probably do very well because they are, you know, implicitly talking about long-term issues. I mean, somebody has to address a whole range of predictable problems that we have. And it's uh, healthcare and housing are, are, are two of them. Climate change where, you know, we've trumpeted the great sort of breakthrough at the end of last year is we are no longer the worst performer on climate change in the European Union we're the second worst you know Poland which produces vast amounts of dirty coal is actually worse than us you know we have great aspirations but like who's telling us how by 2025 we have to be halfway towards our huge targets for 2030 how, how exactly are we getting there things like 
taxation, for example, which which is is the only discussion about taxation that we ever we've ever had in, in, in elections is you know I'm going to give you tax cuts, I'm going to give you these these this this, this I'm going to cut the bans, I'm going to cut the rates, but that kind of stuff. The big huge thing that is facing everybody, and the Department of Finance is saying this very clearly, is about half of our corporation tax is dodgy, right? It's it's dependent on about ten companies. <laughs> Department of Finance is using exactly that term, but, uh, but I well, think you're right. This is this is in one respect used, one of right? the most important economic questions yeah. of this election yeah. for all parties. What do you do in the future if the corporation tax money tree dries up? Yeah. And it, it is in in it, like the, the well, the chief economist of the Department of Finance said just recently this this a lot of this could just go at the stroke of a pen, right? Where a company decides they're moving it offshore. Uh, and it's gone because it's 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 risen so rapidly, right? It's it is a bubble. It's another bubble, and it it could go literally in a couple of weeks. That you know, ten companies could decide actually, oh, we have a new thing, we have a new game we can play, we have a new way to to to, to avoid paying high tax rates, and we're just we're moving all this stuff because it's not it doesn't have to move anything. It, it literally is, you know, structures of of of, of financial jiggery pokery that we're talking about here. We have come to be dependent on that, right? So the reason why the governments can say one of their great things that they will say, for example, and it's a it's a very persuasive, right? Is we, we've 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 put the current budget into surplus. You know, this is fantastic. The reason the current budget's in surplus is because there's about five or six billion, which is which is from what the fiscal advisory council calls excess corporate corporation tax, right? It's 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 stuff that. In any normal situation, we probably wouldn't have, right? And as Pat says, then okay, well, if if it's not normal that you have it, it's it's quite possible it's going to disappear over the next five years. Mm. So, so what is what does a sustainable taxation system in this country looks like? We've never addressed that. Is there any electoral advantage in somebody being honest about this sort of stuff and saying, look, these are really serious issues we have to talk about. We, we have to be decarbonizing the economy. We have to be doing a whole whole new sense of what our taxation system is. We have to be revolutionizing our, 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 our healthcare. We have to re- be revolutionizing our provision of housing. I mean, these are massive things and they're all urgent. They're all going to unfold over the next well, five years. Well, I wonder about this. And one of the things I, want, I wanted to ask you, Pat, is like Finton, I was listening to these Vox Pops that have been quite a lot of on the radio over the last 24 hours or so. And really, I did not realize that Irish people in their totality as far as I can make out from the box office were so progressive were so engaged with the political system were so determined to immediately tackle the problems of homelessness and the environment and so on and so forth and wanted to see more investment in education do politicians who you talk to quietly at the back of rooms sometimes do they believe that uh, voters are telling the truth when they say that those are all their priorities no just like actually there's a symbiotic relationship here just as the voters don't think the politicians are telling the truth, nor do the politicians think that the voters frequently are uh, are telling the truth. Um, I, I, I think, you know, there are legitimate arguments about, uh, about tax and spending. And these are, you know, how big should the state be? What are the things the state should do? How should it do them? How much revenue should the state raise? These are the essential distributional questions of politics and the administration of government in a modern Western democracy. And now is the time to actually have a a proper discussion about that. But a proper discussion about that has to acknowledge the realm of the possible. And it also has to acknowledge that if I cut taxes in this particular way and it costs this much money, I therefore have 
this much less to spend on public services or pay rises for public service for servants or welfare increases or pension increases or whatever. And there is, notwithstanding the elasticity of the the exchequer projections for what we used to call the fiscal space, as in the extra money that will be uh, available to future governments to do extra services or tax cuts. Right? Notwithstanding the elasticity of those numbers, there is still a finite amount of money that will be available to future governments. Now is the time to have that discussion, but what it requires is honesty, not just on behalf of politicians, but on behalf of, uh, on, on behalf of voters as well. So one of those Vox Pops that we've all referred to now, and which are, of course, entirely misleading, you know, but uh, are, are at least have the potential to be, I was listening to this morning, as a very articulate uh, young woman who's on said, I'm going to do my homework before I decide how to vote. I'm waiting to see manifestos. I'm going to look at the election coverage. I just thought, Jesus, this is really, really impressive, you know. And, uh, and she said, and the most, important, um, uh, the most important issue for me is, you know, uh, is the cost of third level for me. The fees are extortionate and I want, you know, my fees, uh, my fees to be cut. And, you know, thinking that third level should be made free or is near to free is a perfectly legitimate political position and she is absolutely entitled to hold that position but what she must acknowledge is that if she spends the money on herself and her pals there is less money elsewhere to deal uh, to deal with other issues and those are the sort of trade-offs that you know are involved in the day-to-day business of government assuming that our broad structure of government is unlikely to change after this election assuming for example that either Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael will lead the next government which I think is what is overwhelmingly likely after this election then those sort of trade-offs must be acknowledged in the election debate Fintan the likelihood it seems to me is that regardless of who wins that contest between the two big parties the next government will most likely uh, involve a party of the left or from the progressive wing of Irish politics or some combination of them out of the Greens, Labour, who knows, Sinn Féin perhaps, you know, depending on how things break down. Do you see that as being a positive outcome or do you think it could actually make a change to what you're what you're talking about here? I think potentially it could. You know, um, it seems to me that the, the left is not going to have any real influence unless it, it, it coheres in some way, right? That's to state the very obvious uh, and and the biggest difficulty there, of course, is, is Sinn Féin. I mean, so so Sinn Féin is not just Sinn Féin. Not, no, no, what, what, what I mean, no, is, is, is people's people's unwillingness to coalesce with Sinn Féin. Do you know what I mean? So 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 Sinn Féin occupies in numerically pretty much the position that the Labour Party traditionally did, and in many constituencies, it's it's pretty much like Labour Party in the nineteen eighties or the early nineteen nineties. It's probably going to pretty much hold its seats. We don't really know, but it's, it's unlikely to gain much, but it's unlikely to lose a lot. So it's probably going to have some, something around 20 seats. That's traditionally what the left, you know, in terms of the Labour Party has brought to bear, right? So we've got 20 seats. We, 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 we coalesce mostly with Fine Gael, once with Fianna Fáil. Um, is Sinn Féin or is it not a player? You know, is, is a key question, right? So if everybody's saying, well, we're not going to deal with Sinn Féin, Sinn Féin can't be in government, uh, it 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 distorts the whole process then, right? So 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 it it means that you've got this big block. Arguably, will the Greens, Labour, the Social Democrats, uh, between them, have another twenty seats? Possibly, um, but it still makes the numbers very strange. 
and the system has to be honest. One of the things I think I'm completely really bad about honesty. One of the things the system has to be honest about, right, is is Sinn Féin or is it not a legitimate political party? Right? It's not do I agree with Sinn Féin? Do I do I think Sinn Féin are fabulous? <laughs> it's is it or is it not a legitimate part of the political culture in the Republic of Ireland. And is that a legitimate question? At yes, this it is. Well, I mean, we've just had, you know, the the entire political establishment in the South, in my view, absolutely rightly saying Sinn Féin absolutely has, an, has a duty to be in government in Northern Ireland. I mean, not just like that it's okay for them to be in government, it's that they have an absolute duty to be in government in Northern Ireland. We're all applauding the fact that, you know, the, the Assembly is up and running, the Executive is up and running, Sinn Féin is back in government. And then we're saying, oh, but Jesus, that stops on the border. You know, like but, for all, but, for all, for all the this North stuff is that a... we've had contrived yes, it is. Yes, political it is. Absolutely. system Absolutely. and but, so contrived in but, response to very particular And that's been the argument for the last 20 years. But yeah. when does that well, argument change? Well, this is, I think it has to change now. I mean, I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm not, people might know I'm not a particular admirer of Sinn Féin, but like you can't keep saying, you, you can say we don't agree with our policies, but but let's be honest about this. That has never been a barrier to to, to coalition formation, right? So coalition formation has always been about you get into the, 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 the negotiating room and you you bargain. That's what happens, right? So so to say, well, we don't agree with our policy on housing, for example, which actually is a very good policy. Um, you know that but, that's that's not legitimate. That's not the reason they're it's, being it's excluded. It's being used as an excuse because people don't actually accept their legitimacy. If they don't accept their legitimacy, then come out and say it. Actually say it directly. But, but in a way, they do But they do say that. So they, they, they say we don't know who the real leadership of Sinn Féin is. I remember reading a piece you wrote in the not-too-distant past about how, you know, this... The, the, the lie, and I think we can call it that, that Jerry Adams was never a member of the IRA was something that everybody in Sinn Féin had to, you know, pay but, obeisance but, but to. But can I just and ask that, you about that, Pat? But, but, I mean, back in the early 90s, Fine Gael refused to go into coalition with the then Workers' Party. And sure. the reason was because it was only 20 years since they'd been engaged in active terrorist acts and there was still a suspicion that the party was not entirely democratic in the way it was run. All pretty much exactly the same kind of thing we're talking about. And then, within a couple of years, they went in and they acknowledged actually the time had come to bite that particular bullet for whatever. And they got on very well together. The, yeah. the <laughs> entire history of Irish politics for the last 30 years has been of people and parties doing things that they said they would never do. So that time will come with Sinn Féin. My view is that it will not come after this election. I don't pass judgment one way or another on that view, but I think that is my analysis. That is that because of the numbers or because of where election? that political trajectory no, the is numbers, right now? I mean, the numbers are perfect for a Fianna Fáil, Sinn Féin coalition, but I don't think that will happen. I don't think Micheál Martin would do it, and if he tried to do it, I don't think his own party grassroots would let him. And what about Fine Gael? I think the reaction among Fine Gael, uh, amongst Fine Gael party would be even more uh, virulently against it. Okay, so... If, if I we're think saying, it will come I, I, perhaps I, I, within I, 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 an election I, or two. Yeah, but I, I, I do I, not think it will I, come after I, this. I completely suspect that Pat's analysis is absolutely right, as, as it always is, of course. Oh. Uh, but 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 uh, let's be honest about that. Okay, so 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 what we're saying to a big chunk of the electorate, right, is actually in terms of government formation, your your vote doesn't matter. No, that's oh, that okay, that happens. Uh, however, it's it's interest. It, in in a way, you could say in previous elections it wasn't an issue because Sinn Fein was saying we're not going to go into any government that's not a not led by Sinn Fein or it's not a not a left wing government, which was never going to happen. So you could say, well, the voters kind of knew that Sinn Fein wasn't in the government business. Sinn Fein now is in the government business, right? It's it's saying very very openly that it it would wants to be part of this arrangement, whatever arrangement emerges after an election. So 
I, I, I do think there's a democratic problem with saying to those voters, your vote, you, you may think you're voting for a, for a, for a party which, which you know, is, is part of the governmental system. We're saying, no, your vote doesn't count in that way. Can but, I ask you about, about to come back, get back to the voters but, themselves then? I was listening to, uh, I think his name is João Pina, uh, who is a Portuguese politician from the ruling centre-left government in, in Portugal. He was on the, the Echo Chamber podcast, which is a left-leaning podcast. That's what I do when I have some time off. That's how exciting my life is. Um, and he was making um, the argument that from the point of view of voters who share certain values about the way a society or an economy should be run, people broadly on the progressive left, that they should, if the parties aren't willing to go into electoral pacts or recommend transfers, whatever, the voters should take it on board and they should say, you know, they should make sure that they transfer between those parties. We can list them off. There's five or six of them, I suppose, you know, at least. And that at the very least, at the outcome of this election, I suppose the consequence would be, is that that block, and it is quite a large block now, it's much larger than it was back back in the 1990s, that block would have more sway and more sway. Yeah, I, I, I think that's absolutely the case. And 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 look, let's let's just think about what what are the possible outcomes. Right, the possible outcomes is a, a government led by Fianna Gael, uh, which is actually unlikely, I think, under Leo Varadkar to to be particularly hospitable to a, a sort of left coalition, even one that excludes Sinn Fein. Right, um, Fianna Fáil will go with it like like I mean, like a light. You know, I mean, Michal Martin would be only too delighted actually to to. Already, the rhetoric of, of Fianna Fáil, we know this is it's, it's always done this, of course. You know, shifted between a sort of left-wing, left-leaning rhetoric when it's out of out of out of power, and then you know goes back to being a very conservative centre-right party when it's in power. At the moment, it's placed in a you know sort of broadly social democratic kind of space in terms of you know housing and healthcare and delivery of public services, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I I I don't doubt that that if you were to you know get um, Michal Martin to tell you what he actually would really like, what he would really like is to be Taoiseach in a government which is Fianna Fáil, Green, Labour, Social Democrat. You know, would that, that be right, Pat? I, I, think that, I think that's true and I think he has spent the last year cozying up to those yeah. people uh, in, in the Dáil in an attempt to put that together. And it is possible that those numbers work. And, you know, to go back to the, the, the question just on, on, on the numbers of it, of Sinn Féin, if we say Sinn Féin's going to have, say, 20 seats after the next election, which I think by the way, Mary Lou Macdonald would take your hand off yeah. now to, uh, uh, to to have just least judging by the results of the local elections uh, last year. But let's say they have say uh, they have twenty seats. The combination of Labour, the Greens, Social Democrats, and like-minded the opponents of this world, independents. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. I'm not talking about the parties of the far left or revolutionary left. I'm talking about you know centre-left independents like Catherine's opponent, Fianna McGrath, and so forth in, in, uh, in this government, they will have 20 seats as well. Yeah. And if they cohere in that period after the election and before the Dáil meets and work out what they want themselves, and that will involve those sort of compromises and trade-offs that we discussed earlier. Because remember, the people don't elect a government, voters don't elect a government, Voters like the doll. The doll chooses a government. But if they come together and they cohere and combine and come up with a negotiating position, then they will be able to name their price from Fianna Fáil or Fianna Gael. Now, those numbers might not work out, might not get them to 80 seats, but it might get them pretty darn close. Well, one of the things that strikes me hearing you say that is then, does that then open up an opportunity for Fine Gael? Because you have a bunch of parties who are either self-described as being of the left or traditional socialist parties or whatever, or parties of the green, or 
Michal Martin describing himself as of the centre left, and that opens up a space. You know, there's a lot of Irish people who don't describe themselves as being uh, of the centre left or further to the left. Uh, um, Fia Kelly was talking on our daily podcast yesterday evening about perhaps one of the reasons why this election has been called for a Saturday is to appeal to a very kind of specific demographic: people in their thirties and their forties, small kids, commuting, kind of pin of their collar financially, not particularly keen. Uh, on anything which kind of adds to their tax burden or anything of that sort. In fact, yeah. keen on quite on quite the opposite. And that space is kind of left almost entirely free I think for Finnegan. Sorry, I think that is exactly the space that Leo Varadkar is aiming for. And one of the one of the principal ways he will do that is to talk about uh, tax cuts. And now he will claim that oh, we're going to do all this social spending, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, as well. And you know the government. To go by the allocation of resources in recent budgets, which at the beginning of this government was supposed to be two to one in favour of investment of public services and tax cuts, has been, I think, 11 or 12 to one in favour of uh, spending in, on, on public services against tax cuts. So, you know, not by any conventional measure could you have called those budgets right wing. Uh, but I think that Leo Varadkar, both because he espies a political opportunity in that space and also because I think it is more true to his own political philosophy and his own original political attitudes. Anyway, I think we'll zero in on that. And I think the potency potency that is feared uh, of that by the other parties you will see from Fianna Fáil who will have a tax package also in uh, uh, in their platform. So when they are confronted with this, with the promise of Fine Gael tax cuts, they will be able to say, we Mind you, the other, d- d- you know, the other part supposedly of the theory of being a centre-right party is fiscal prudence, which you mentioned earlier, and it's supposed to be completely against all the dogmas of fiscal prudence that you inject more money into the economy by reducing taxes while the economy is on the rise as much as, as, much as it is at the moment. Mind you, the centre-right seems to have given up on the fiscal prudence thing in the UK and the US and elsewhere, hasn't it? Because they deem it to be politically unpopular. There's not a huge... So were they lying about not, it all the time? There's not a huge constituency out there for amassing surpluses. Charlie McGreevy once said that, you know, no finance minister in a democracy can sustain, can run a, a surplus uh, in, uh, in, indefinitely. This isn't, of course, true. Lots of actually broadly social democratic governments in, uh, in Europe have done precisely that for, uh, for many years. But um, it's a defining feature of parties of the centre-right that they lie about this, isn't it? That in opposition, they make it the, the first item absolutely. on the agenda and as soon as they get into power, it's just it's flipped out the window. I mean, just I mean, look at the Republicans in Congress. It's astonishing and it's, it is worldwide, but it's, 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 it's completely about, I mean, fiscal rectitude, as it used to be called here in the 1980s, I'm old enough to remember, fiscal rectitude, which a lot of the Fianna Fáil politicians couldn't quite get right. They kept calling it physical rectitude. Remember that? <laughs> <laughs> Sounded great. Uh, but, Sounds you know, like it's sort of a priapic condition. It, doesn't right? it? Yeah, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> We won't, we won't, we won't go there, Pat. Uh, but, but you know, the, the, this this use of this sort of um, you know prudence, uh, control. You know, we, we're the we're we're the parties. Not sp- uh, well, for for example, has it ever stopped any of them from having a war? Is it ever stopped saying? I, well, sorry, we just can't afford a war. Like you know, it would be really bad use of public money. You know, oh, has no, it you ever stopped them? Doing, that, no, fair. no, no. But 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 has it ever stopped them? You know, has it ever stopped? Like last week, I mean, Lever after saying within a matter of minutes, oh, here's another ten million. Of course it doesn't. You know, so so. The progressive party should be really attacking them on this, you know, and should really be attacking them on the basis of what what does real fiscal prudence look like? Well, real fiscal prudence looks like tackling child poverty, for example, which apart from being 
socially unjust, apart from being an appalling abuse of human rights, is fiscally, just on simple fiscal terms, I mean, completely insane. To, to be raising a generation of kids in poverty and homelessness, we know what the cost of that is. I mean, you, you know, you can, you can every, every euro you're not spending is going to cost you somewhere between 10 and 15 euro down the line, you know, in, in healthcare and in, in, in criminal justice system and, you know, educational opportunity for gone and taxation for gone, all that kind of stuff. So, and, and you can look at pretty much every one of these areas and you can say, look, there's, what, what the country needs is actual fiscal prudence, you know, real serious sense of how are we going to do these things over a period of time. The challenge for parties who are not Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, whoever they are, right, is, is to try to change the time frame. It's actually to try to, you know, get people to think about 2025 even, never mind 2030, you know. I mean, it's to say, look, Yes. So the government's great card is going to be saying, look, things are actually all right, aren't they? They're, they're going along. We're not. The IMF is gone. You know, there's people at work. There's more people at work than at any time in the history of the state. The export economy is booming. We've done a great job on Brexit, which they have a very good case to make uh, on. Uh, you know, so it, it's it's going to be, look, it's, things are going OK. We know you've got all these problems, but leave it with us. We're not going to upset the apple cart. We'll, we'll, we'll keep the thing going. The counter narrative has to be, Things are not going to keep going. You know, it, the world is not like that. And, well, they never and, do. They never do. And and they're going to be completely unpredictable things that we have no, no idea about. But there are, there's at least a dozen entirely predictable things, like some of the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of in terms of health and education. But like things like, for example, which is very unlikely to feature in the election campaign at all, which is. We know from the Irish Skills Survey that roughly a third of Irish workers over the next five years, so in the, in the course of the next election, are going to face real challenges from automation. They may be losing their jobs. Uh, and they will be workers who are, who are less skilled, you know, but, but, well, to, to, to a large extent, uh, across agriculture, hospitality, retail, all those kinds of areas which actually employ people in the economy. Multinationals, in fact, are not where the employment is. You know, they're, they're where the export is, where the money is, but they're not where the employment is. The employment is in small and medium-sized enterprises, which are really vulnerable to, to all of this. Who's going to say, how, how are we going to deal with the possibility that, that a third of people in these sectors are, are going to lose their jobs? Well, the only answer you have to that, right, is, is, is upskilling. Right? It's the only thing you can say. It's not a great answer. It's not always the answer, but it's the only one that any, you know, democratic government has. What, do, what, what are we like in relation to this? Well, we're not very good. We're actually not very good at upskilling. About 13% of the workforce is engaged in some kind of, even in very, very broadly uh, defined continuing education. The, the leading countries in Europe, 30%, 40% are engaged in sort of continual upskilling. Is anybody going to talk about that in the election? Probably not. But, but these are real, you know, th these are absolutely predictable things that are going to arise right. over the next five years. So if, if I were running a progressive campaign, <laughs> I would be saying, look, he, this isn't airy-fairy stuff. Anymore. You know, this is stuff that we actually know is going to happen. What, what are the policies that can actually begin to address these kinds of things? I mean, Pat mentioned university fees, for example, and, and it's very, quite right to say, okay, you know, the, the person who's talking about, I want my university fees, not, not, I don't have to pay them, right? It's, 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 it's a sectoral thing. It's also a national issue, right? If, if, you, if you were to take, what's the one thing this country has done outstandingly well? I mean, outstandingly well in world terms over the last 40 years. It's third level education, right? We've done an incredible job. I mean, absolutely astonishing job of taking a really undereducated workforce and making it the best educated workforce in the world. I mean, this is 
almost half of our workforce has a third level education. But the, the entire third level system and the entire third level is system creaking. is is is, is falling down, right? So 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 this is not abstract. Right? This is something we've done incredibly well. It's at the absolute heart of all the change that's happened in Ireland, all the positive change, uh, socially, economically, every other way. This is really the big thing we've done really really well, and it's 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 in really extraordinary danger. Five years ago, we had we had two universities in the world top hundred. Now we've got one in the world top two hundred. We've none in the top one hundred. You know, but but actually, so, the, the 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 reason yeah. for that, I agree with everything Fisher said. But the reason for that, or one of the principal reasons that the third level system is absolutely creaking now, is that like every other part of the public service, it was uh, starved of cash during the uh, uh, following the Great Recession, this great period of adjustment uh, during the during the period of the uh, uh, the the bailout, right? But other parts of the public service recovered in terms of investment. Very few of them saying, oh, we're fine now, we've, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've too much money. But uh, the universities, the third level system was absolutely squeezed and that squeeze never really abated. And the reason that it didn't really abate goes back to where we started this conversation is because it wasn't good enough at making the case for itself. It wasn't good at shouting at politicians, at getting that extra 10 million like the guys in Connacht Rugby had. Maybe they should get the guys from Connacht Rugby to run Trinity College. Uh, but, but though, like, this is part of the same conversation. It's part of the whole model of the way we do things. And that produces some fundamental problems in our, uh, uh, in our society. And this is, the, this is the time that people can issue a set of instructions to politicians to change at least parts of that. It is most unlikely that our entire system is going to change after no, this No, no, I don't think anybody's, but the ex- nobody's expecting perfection. Of issuing a new set of instructions to politicians when they then go to form uh, the next government and this is people's chance to do it. You know, Fine, Fine Gael used the word future in their slogan, which they, uh, which they launched yesterday, I think. So Fine Gael is supposed to be about the future. Finton asks about the future. Our democratic political system, some people argue that democratic political systems are inherently very bad at thinking beyond that the electoral cycle is a is an extremely damaging thing in 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 many countries because politicians are are given a set of incentives is, not, not is to think about the, the alternative. Future. It is indeed better the alternative. I think we can we can all agree that. But is the Irish system particularly bad? Either of you can answer that. Y- y- yes, it is. You know. Um you're absolutely right. Of course, this is inherent. You know, the the incentives for politicians are are time limited. You know, it's it's like I think it was in one of your books, Pat. Somebody said it's about getting the people to take the shit most of the time and then being nice to them at electoral time. You know, I mean, that, um, <laughs> the version of that, the version of that. You know, and that, that's that's of course what it is. You know, and and so the incentives are are very much time limited. They're very much to short short horizons. But um, I think what politicians are coming up against is that uh, that the the Irish system of government is is crisis management. You know, it's not avoiding crisis; it's it's managing the crisis and 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 managing the political fallout from the crisis. So and getting people used to crisis, right? So we're we're all we, we accept stuff now. Let, let's just reflect on this. Right? So we we accept stuff now in twenty twenty that at the time of the last election in twenty sixteen, if somebody had said. We will, we will now have a completely normal attitude to 10,000 people being homeless, including at least 3,500 to 4,000 children. That, that'll be just normal, right? That, that'll be 
you know, won't even be a news story anymore. <laughs> People would say, ah, come on, we, we, we as a society would never tolerate that. You know? And of course we do. We, 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 we get used to things getting worse and worse. We get used to the sort of extraordinary stuff, like the fact that, you know, I mean, ki kids in Ireland simply ca cannot get access to, I'm talking about time limited. I mean, you know, what kids need, kids with disabilities, for example, you know, with hearing problems, with speech and language difficulties, they need access to treatment now. I mean, it's no good for a six-year-old or seven-year-old kid saying you'll get it when you're 14. You know, their life is ruined. You know, it's this is really shocking stuff that's going on. And we know from figures that Stephen Donnelly, the Fianna Fáil uh, health, health spokesman, um, got, got there recently, you know, if you're in if you're in Dublin South East, there's no waiting list at all. If you're in if you're in North Dublin, like it's it's years, you know. Like so, it's not even stuff that that you say. Well, if you can do it in Dublin South East, why can't you do it in North Dublin? Why, why, you know what what we just tolerate stuff that just kind of goes on and on and on with this kind of true, inefficiency true, but and to be injustice. Honest, these are the things that people have been talking about and people will talk about in this election yeah. campaign. I mean, every. Uh, you know, every Vox Pop again or every politician yeah. you say will say that the two big issues are health and housing. Yeah. So these are the things but that are being But they cannot be dealt with anymore on a sort of ad hoc basis, right? This is the crisis management thing just isn't working. If you look at those areas, right? For example, healthcare has a cross-party plan, right, called Sláinte Care, which is, it was agreed by all the parties, right? This is the, so, so in one way, we, 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 we've been slowly moving towards a realisation that you have to have plans in place that are, that, that are going to survive changes of government, right? So with Sláinte Care, all the parties agree what the, what the strategy is. In right? theory, in up theory, to a point. In, no, this is the, the, what they don't, you know, what, what, what we don't have is who's going to actually do it and who, who's going to take the difficult decisions, Who's going to stand up to the vested interest within the system? Who's going to say that it's just intolerable that 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 the way in which this this operates can can go on? One of the things we're probably going to have to do is spend a huge amount of money in order to save money in the health system, right? So you, you're going to have to provide alternatives. Just take very simple stuff, right? Which is why can't people get into hospital? One of the reasons they can't get into hospital is because people can't get out of hospital. And why can't people get out of hospital? Because we won't bloody well build decent step-down facilities for, for people. Why are so many people or in a and home care packages so yeah. they can go home. Yeah. I mean, so stuff that's actually cheaper and better for people that people want. It's not, it's not like you're punishing people. People desperately want to get out of the hospital and they can't get out of it. Why are people in A&Es? A lot of them are in A&Es because, and again, we know, everybody agrees on this, that you need local local medical centres right, where people can actually go at a lower level um, to have most of the stuff. 80% of the stuff can, can be dealt with before you go to a hospital A&E. But you have to spend some money in order to achieve these things. And what we haven't had from the major parties, right, is is is, is a real prioritisation and a real commitment to putting those kinds of resources in place. And true? you can look at area after area. Is that in, true? In, in both the, say the two major parties, have they failed in terms of, I mean, certainly any attempt to redeem these things have failed. Have the two major parties? I think because, uh, I, I, I think because there is a reluctance and there are structural impediments to spending particular amount of money and Finder talks about okay you've got to build the step down uh, step down facilities fund home care packages to get people out of hospital Ab absolutely true now you know the, it's a multifaceted problem but that will be one of the big things get people out of hospital so you can get people into hospital because actually when people get into the system they, they do quite they do quite well the big pinch point is is getting is is getting, it. Is, uh, is, getting uh, is getting in so um, but to do that you need a decision not just to spend money in one particular area, but to hold off spending it in other areas. So 
one of the big things that they're going to spend money on in the, in the next year is on pay increases for consultants. They've already spent 150 million or so on the nurses, uh, on, on, on pay increases for nurses. I make no judgment whether that is, that it, you know, whether that is wise or not. But they're going to spend a whole pile of money more on, uh, on paying, uh, paying consultants more because they find they can't recruit them through that. So... That, a lot of the money is going there. So would we be better off not paying the consultants, not paying the nurses more and spending the money uh, in, in, in yeah. this particular area? Uh, but what so, we yeah. tend to do yeah. is they will announce a few step plans yeah. for step-down facilities. They will yeah. increase pay and, and hire a certain number of consultants, but, but not enough. And part of that goes back to where we were again right. is because the medical, uh, because the, the, the health system is... Uh, you know, more even than many areas of public administration and public life is defended by very well, uh, uh, very well funded and and very able special. And we're going to come back. We're going to we're going to look at that issue and other issues like that because they are incredibly in depth. We just wanted to look at it from the point of view of the political establishment and how that's going to going to work. Last word, Fintan. Are you optimistic about what kind of an outcome you might see out of this election? I think it might be a very interesting election. You know, I, I, I actually do think, and I, I, I think Pat's point is the, cri- the critical one, you know, that all the evidence suggests that there's, there's a very, very large number of voters who are, who are genuinely undecided. I mean, not, not in the sort of, um, you know, I, plaguing all their houses, I don't care um, sense, but actually really curious and really wondering what the hell is the best thing to do. Um, and and uh, I, I do think... If we can get a campaign, and it may well be driven more by the smaller parties in in in, in the reality of it, that does try to focus on even on a five year t- time frame, for quite a ten year time frame, actually talks about what does this society absolutely have to face up to. Um, we could have a reasonably good quality of debate. I think a lot of it's going to depend on us as journalists, right? If 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 we do the old thing of getting completely obsessed with you know who's going to form a coalition and what you know and that that's they're the only questions that are going to be asked, uh, then we will we will fail. I think we we, we will fail the public too. We, we we have to be able to inject some sense of policy seriousness into the questions. On that note of combined optimism and admonition, we shall leave it there. Thanks very much, Fintan and Pat. And that's it for today. Thanks to our producer Declan and to JJ on the desk. Remember, you can subscribe to us on all your preferred podcast platforms. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. You can mail us at politicspodcast at irishtimes.com um, or you can usually find me on Twitter at hlinahan. We're doing daily podcasts every evening, so do tune in for those as well. Uh, I'll talk to you very soon. 